touched him, take him to people, and they were being healed. So you see where the TV guys get it from. This really happened in Ephesus. And the word was getting out. And the, some of the Jews saw it and thought, you know what? We can do that too, because they heard what he said. They heard the words, and so they went out and were doing it themselves. And these individuals, the certain seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, decided they could do it too. And they went to a, a person that was uh, under demonic possession, and they said the words, you know, uh, that Paul had used for healing, and they got an answer, which they did not expect. This, while, this I will read, because this is pretty impressive. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? That doesn't give you the willies. I don't know what will. And the man in whom was the great evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. In West Virginia, they got the tar beat out of them is what happened. And they might have been little men. Maybe they were just little wimpy guys, but this, this demon-possessed guy tore them up. Um, they were trifling in something they had no business doing, and they paid the price. So this, goes, this becomes famous now. This story, you can imagine how this story would run wild. And so the issue became, in the next section of this chapter, that people began to convert in such numbers that the business of the merchants who sold the little shrine trinkets made of silver, cheap silver, they're really cheaply made, it was a business, a cheap, low-cost business that they sold for an exorbitant price business, and now the bottom line is being impacted, and they start to complain. And the silversmith decided to... Uh, uh, actually, that skips a part here, but it's interesting that I have to back up because this is, this is important, is that the revival that took place out of that was so strong that they gathered together all these pagan uh, books, and this, this is how vile this place was, dark, if you will. They piled them all up and they burned them all, and it was 50,000 pieces of silver worth, which is a vast sum in this day, a vast sum. And then the complaint became... They're ruining our business, and this this is a, this uh, this this is funny. Luke writing this, this is a great. I had, to, I had to highlight this one too. It's a great quote. The subtle thing says this: uh, Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. This was, that's a small way of saying they were making a ton of money in this business. Now. He appeals to the people, said, look, our business is being ruined here. And then what really got him riled up was, and there's the temple. He says that the end result of this is going to be that Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They begun crying out, saying, great is the Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, they had taken, this is, this is the set, one of the seventh wonders of the world. People come all over the world. This is their number one attraction. And you can make a lot of money selling gimmicks for people to take home. There was a big business, and this is going to be ruined. And so the people were in an uproar. And the next slide will, will show you where they took off to. This is the Artemis Amphitheater. It is the largest amphitheater 
surviving in the world, as far as we know from this era. It would seat 25,000 people, and that's it. What's left of it, which is a lot. Uh, that's looking out towards the water. That doesn't show it. If, if I had the chance to do it over again, I'd pick another view, because there's a boulevard that runs from where the waterfront used to be in Ephesus, all the way to the, almost the base of this thing. It's a, it's a gigantic, almost a half a mile long boulevard that's column line. You just get a sense of this incredible place. This theater was where not only dramas were performed, etc., but also gladiatorial games were t also took place at the, at the foot down there. So this was used for, in a lot of different ways. Well, this place got packed with this crowd, and they're all screaming, and, and the people, fairly high officials, as the, uh, the book says, told Paul, don't go in there. Don't go in there. And eventually, one of the, the, the city officials came in and said, look, this, this is pretty darn close to a riot here. You better knock it off, or the Romans are going to crack down on us. So the crowd finally dispersed. But you can see, you get a taste when you see this picture you can see it. You can feel it. You can see the crowd uh, wanting to destroy Paul. And but the, this gives you an image of how this church started. It had it started before it says in, in the book of Acts. It started with uh, Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Nobody knows exactly who planted the church. But now Paul is there almost three years. He starts to spend the three years there and teaches and preaches and, and builds and. and and uh, equips. And this then, having set that stage, this is what Jesus now says to this church. Uh, let's look at Revelation 2, verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. It's a very high commendation, very high praise. Uh, this is a church that has done what they've been told to do, very clearly. They toil. The word, the first word underlined here is, is the word no. This, that word, it, Greek has different words they can use for one thing we have in English. We have a word, no. They had different words for different types of knowledge. This one is know thoroughly, know all about it. And this was the word that the Lord uses. I know all about what you've done. Your deeds, the works they've done, the working, uh, and the toil. The toil is a very strong word as well. That implies sweat labor. That's, what, that's the kind of work they were doing. They worked really hard at what they were doing. And perseverance was a very interesting word. Because perseverance here is not just gutting it out. Uh, two different uh, 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 word that, ways to describe this word I found. One was patience in trying circumstances. The other one is courageous acceptance of hardship. Uh, the people of Ephesus, were, like I said, were in a very pagan place, very dark place, which you can imagine was constant oppression, constant backlash. Um, and this church persevered patiently, uh, diligently through all of these difficulties, and 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 forged through all these all these uh, hurdles, if you will. There were also, particularly in this time, it's no less today because they don't come to your church now, but they're on TV. But what you see are people that will come 
and tell things that are not true about the word. They make a business of it. They make money at it. They made money out of it then. And back then, it was, they, would be, they would travel place to place, and they would pretend to be speakers of the word, and they did it for income. And this was the problem all over throughout the churches of the day. And th- there was admonishment against that. There was a discussion against that. In fact, the Apostle Paul, and we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, what the call for the church to be is spiritually discerning. Uh, and this has a lot of different applications. We, we, are to be, we should be able to see and discern and compare with what the Scripture says with what we're hearing. Well, again, like whether it's TV, whether it's a, a, a thousand different inputs, we'd be able, we should be spiritually discernible, discernment. I'm having trouble speaking fluidly. Pardon me. I'm an amateur. Take me a break. But spiritual discernment is the question here. And Acts chapter 20, uh, which is the next chapter over, I actually have a, a, a scripture for this because I want to follow along with this. Paul, when he left Ephesus, finished his tour, he stopped by Ephesus on the way back to Jerusalem. He was on the way there. Um, he was going to have a divine destiny there with, uh, with jail. Uh, doesn't know that yet. But he stopped by Ephesus, and these were the last words he, he told the elders of that church. Put that in the framework of what we know happened. Be on guard for yourselves and for all your flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert and remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you each one with tears. So Paul knows that the future holds people that will come behind him and pervert the truth. We are no less challenged with that today, and it's our duty to keep our spiritual eyes open to discern what is told to us and and compare it with what the Word says. Uh, That's no less true than today. But Revelation 2.4 is the admonition. It's a very short sentence, but it is massive. It's this, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, there's two aspects to the first love. The main one, of course, is the love for the Lord. Now, the question becomes then, what did this church look like? If you, if you could go back, not knowing what the word says, not knowing this little clue, what would that church look like? They had the programs. They had the outreach, they had the, the, uh, the church suppers, they had Sunday school, they had a packed youth group, they had a credible choir, people were singing, there was no dissension among them. What was missing? The love. They lost the love for the Lord. How is that possible? so easy. It's so easy, isn't it? That you do church so well, so hard, so vigorously, to the point of sweat. You endure hardship, but you're not doing it out of love. 
You're doing it out of a system, out of a mechanical structure. Humans have a terrible tendency to take charge of situations. I've said it over and over again. I said it again this morning in Sunday school, and I'll say it again now. What human beings do over and over again is they make it about themselves. Their ministry, their outreach, their work, their accomplishments, all for the Lord, all with good intentions, but they don't do it out of the love of the Lord. They've lost that love. And here's what it looks like in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, or 2, verses 1 and 2. This is just a piece of it, but it sets up uh, something Jeremiah was saying uh, as part of a prophetic utterance. And this is the Lord's perspective on what he wants out of his people, what he looks back for and longs for in his people. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth. He's talking about Exodus when they came out of uh, bondage. The love of your betrothals, you're following after me in the wilderness, through a land not sown. The time when they had nothing, were in the wilderness, and they were close to God is what God longs for in your heart. When you've got a building, when you've got ministry set up, when you've got great leadership, don't forget about the love of the Lord. Why are you here? Jesus said, and this is really powerful, and this is where it comes together, I think, in this passage. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Familiar passage, but it's worth repeating over and over. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, why is it always a lawyer? That's what I, that's always a lawyer. Asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Now, this is a trap. They wanted to pick one because they figured they can use that to hammering. But you're not going to trap Jesus. Jesus gave him two. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, those two things are, ought to be the basis of every single thing we do. First and foremost, love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. All of it. Now, when I'm honest with myself, which is sometimes, I realize I don't think I've ever loved the Lord like that. With all of, all of my being? Those words alone convict you of sin. It's incredible conviction of sin. Uh, however, uh, as pathetically as I, as I love the Lord, I realize I cannot completely do it because I'm broken. I mean, if nothing else, that should leave you, lead you to look for a, a Savior, look for Jesus, because that, those, that's terribly convicting, just on itself. But the second, he said, is like unto it, that you should love others as yourself. Have I ever done that for two minutes, two seconds, one second, a millisecond? That's a very high standard, very high calling. And we know we can't do that. But without that, without that, you are not a church. 
So we're always going to be struggling to attain what the Lord says we should have. But if we're not aiming high, we're going to miss what? We're going to miss wide. That aim small, miss small, the old, uh, the old adage about shooting. Same way. If we're going to aim big, church programs, <laughs> we're going to miss. Let's aim for the love which, which the Lord has called us to have in our lives. And that means that a healthy church has a love for the Lord, a, a desire to do His will, and have a measure equal to that, or nearly equal to that, for each other. That there's no room for divisiveness and pettiness and backbiting and this kind of thing, which takes place in churches all over the land. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, this is not a slide, I just, I don't, and I don't intend to read it, but I want to cover it again, sort of like I did Acts chapter 19, because this is the famous love chapter, right? Um, I actually read this at a wedding once. It's always used in weddings, but it's not about marriage. It's about us. The context of the scripture is not about two people. It applies. I mean, a love relationship between two people is, is a lot like this in many, many ways. But it's not really about that relationship. It's about the relationship of one another in a church. I will read part of this, because this is how we should be one with another. This section right here. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. I'll stop there. How many times in church has somebody stepped on your toes and you get upset? It's human nature. I know what's happened. It's happened a thousand times. Or at work or in place else. The Word tells us, do not pick up that offense. You have an option whenever you're offended. You can take it or not take it. Why take the offense? The Word says don't want to take it. Now, I understand, if you're spiritual discerning, sometimes you need to, dis to, inter to intervene when a wrong has been done. That's not, you, but you do it in love. That's essential. The, the, the typical response for humans are, is we get angry, and we get angry, we stew, and pretty soon we're no longer, there is no love anymore. And so... The, the, the body becomes dysfunctional when it's not attached by the cords of love. That is, that's the lesson that's being taught here by the Lord to the church in Ephesus. A church who's doing everything right, oh yeah, except it's not out of love anymore. It's works-oriented. A fabulous, fantastic church in a fantastic place. And yet, they were less than they should be. Verses 5 and 6 is the call to back to where the Lord wants us to be. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Repent is not feel sorry for. That should be the first thought, like, oh my God, what have I done? But you've got to turn away from it, it's not repenting. And do not do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet, this you do hate, have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he compliments them again at the end. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the thing to remember is that remember where you were. If you came to believe in Christ later in life, you have a little bit of advantage. If you grew up in church, 
and have always known the Lord as far back as you can remember, there may not be that awareness of what it was like to be a new believer. What's a new believer like that believes that as an adult? They learn for the first time the power of prayer. They spend time in the prayer. They spend time anxiously looking for the Word, reading the Word. They have this energy. They love to tell people about Jesus. There's no greater witness than a new believer. What happens when you've been around a church for a while? How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in the Word? How much time do you spend talking to other people about Christ and His love for, for, for them? You see the, see the diminishing aspect of this in your life? This is what happened in Ephesus. They had lost their love. They left it. They left it behind. These kinds of activities can serve as kind of a barometer in aviation in terms of love. You want to see these measured in a high number in your life. These are the ways that you can see the love of the Lord in your life. But if you, set, you schedule time every day to read the Word, it becomes a habit. That's not bad, but is that out of love or out of schedule? You see what I'm saying? Where is your heart in this pursuit? The Nicolaitans, as a side note, are not well known. The Lord hated them, we know that. And some of the other letters mention the Nicolaitans. In fact, they were mentioned by the ancient writers. But exactly who they were is not really known. Uh, some of the ancient writers related them to uh, Nicholas, Acts chapter 6. We don't, we're not going to look that up either. But when they appointed the first servants, if you will, because there were some troubles in the early church, and they nominated people to act as essentially deacons, Nicholas was the last one named. And, and they attached this uh, deviancy, if you will, in, in, in belief to Nicholas. The ancient writers did. Whether or not that's true or not. But what it involved was, is fairly clear. The Nicolaitans took the liberty a person has in Christ. In other words, the liberty one has to be forgiven for wrong and took it to the degree that they would intentionally do wrong because they knew they could be forgiven. Uh, Clement of Alexandria a couple hundred years later, wrote about these people, and he used these words. They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading to a life of self-indulgence. So the Nicolaitans embodied these people, whether they go back to this poor person who was the deacon, or, or whether that was a, a false accusation, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But you can see the kinds of teaching that was coming around the churches that they were supposed to watch out for. This part about remembering is really shown well in the parable told by Jesus. Luke chapter 15, verses 14 to 18. This is the, uh, the prodigal son. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. This is after he lost all his money. And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Have you ever been around a pig farm? I've never been a thing more disgusting in my entire life. I'm not going to tell you about it. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe what pigs will do. But this is where this guy's living. I mean, I, I, I've got perspective on this thing now. It was a pig farm in Iowa, no less. The worst kind. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. I'm not going to say anything. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, ding, the Edison light bulb, 
He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, and I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. This is what remembering is about, that you manage to find yourself groveling with swine while the king of kings is still waiting for you to come home. That's what remembering means. And so this church of Ephesus is being called to this kind of remembrance. Come home. We might have left the first love, but the first love has not left us. That's why it's not lost. That's why that word is really important. It's not lost. It's there. We have to remember and go home. Finally, the closing, which is typical of all the letters in Revelation. Verse 7. He who has an ear. Now, that's everybody. I mean, I understand hearing impaired people, but... um, This message is for everybody. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not the seven, the churches, us. What the Spirit has to say to us. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The promise is that the overcome, the overcomers, the ones who get the crown of overcoming, we saw this actually in in Revelation chapter 4 this morning, will wear this crown. And the restoration to uh, paradise, Eden, the paradise of God, and the tree of life, which in the beginning, if you recall, was the tree that had to do with the sustenance of human beings, which was required for us to exist for a very long time, if not forever physically. And that's, we're going to be restored to this in the future. And that is the promise of God. Now, what is an overcomer? These definitions. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. The same John to whom this revelation was given, by the way. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, who is the one who overcomes the world, in, in who, who, who overcomes the world, who, but who believes the Lord is the Son of Jesus. So, believing in Christ and holding fast to him is to overcome it all. What is not overcoming it all is to grabbing it by both hands and fighting through it with your own strength. Two different, total different animals. John has told us that if you believe and hold on by faith to that belief, to the Lord Jesus, you will overcome. And you will be rewarded in heaven and be with him forever. The question is, of course, do you believe? Do you really believe? In the Lord Jesus. That's the question. One more verse, and we'll close. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. This is the command of Jesus. And it's to us. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you, have, if you have love for one another. It's not normal for people to get along in that way for very long, in the human terms. It's abnormal enough to be the miraculous act of a living God when, it, when a group of people can agree to disagree and love God and love each other as 
much as we love ourselves. That's a gift of God. And if we don't pursue that, if we don't aim for that, we're always going to have troubles. If you've been around church a long time, and I've been a long time in church, I have seen issues caused by human error, by mistakes made, and then those mistakes amplified by virtue of a lack of love and forgiveness, or an offense taken up when it could have well been uh, dealt with in another way. Uh, it's, it's just something we need to vigorously avoid. And at a time of transition such as this, it's easy to make mistakes. It's easy to have uh, concerns about direction and, and anxiety, about what person is going to be brought here, and all these things. It's a time of vulnerability because we begin to act in ways that are humanly typical, that we try to take things and make things directed, and we try to push them in a way. And then it be we become even less than the church at Ephesus because the programs are starting to fail. and starting to We start having anxiety about the future. The Lord has it all under control. The Lord is our shepherd, and he is guiding us, and we need to obedient to him, and step number one is to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind. And number two is love each other as yourself. It's that simple and that hard. But that's the word that's taught to the church in Ephesus. That's why I was, I, I, I was telling Patty this morning that I was, uh, you know, I mentioned that there's Elias Keach who converted himself in his own sermon. I converted myself in my own Bible study this week. I, I was touched by this because I realized that I'm human and it's easy to take offense and easy to have hard feelings and um, it's easy to get misdirected. Um, it's human nature, uh, but Jesus is big enough to help us overcome it. And uh, that's my message this morning, that the church of Ephesus has words to tell us that as magnificent as they were in their work, they lost their love, they left their love, they left their first love. But there's hope. There's hope in him. And it boils down to the question is, do you believe? Do you really believe? If you do, then you can be assured he is with you and with us all. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it's a high standard, indeed, an incredibly high standard you lift up to us. A standard, when we truly consider it, is impossible in our own strength which is a good thing because we know we can only accomplish it relying, relying upon you. It's only in your strength that we can persevere. It's only in your strength that we can overcome. It's only in faith in you that we have victory. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on that instead of circumstances. Keep our eyes on that instead of human leadership and, and human effort. Lord, let us persevere through all sorts of trials and hardships as you encouraged and, and patted the church in Ephesus on the back for doing. But let us be wary of leaving our love for you because that is really our primary focus. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask a blessing on the, on the, uh, the meal to come. And we thank you for having your hand upon us and pointing us in the future. For it's in Jesus' name I pray.